This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. Welcome to a Joycast from Joy 94.9. Visit joy.org.au to find out more about our Joycasts. On air, streaming and on podcast. This is Gay News Week. News and current affairs from a bent perspective. You're listening to Gay News Week. Gay News Week. Gay News Week. Gay News Week. On Joy 94.9. Good evening and welcome to Gay News Week on Joy 94.9. My name is Matt Thompson. I'm Katie Larson. And I'm Geoffrey Devine. We're bringing you the latest in news and current affairs impacting the GLBTI community over the next hour. On tonight's show... First off, we'll be speaking to Ron Hughes, who's the editor of Blaze Magazine in Adelaide, about the uh, AIDS Council closing down there in South Australia. Mm-hmm. We'll also be uh, listening to an interview that was on Joy earlier in the week with Susan Close, the Labor MP, who introduced the Bill for Marriage Equality that has not passed in South Australia also. Lots going on in South Australia. And we're going to be taking a story which is about the release of the Born Free and Equal strategy from the United Nations. And we're going to be speaking to Cecile Pooley, who I hope hope I've pronounced correctly, (laughs) from the United Nations about that. Following which we're going to then do the National Roundup and the International News Roundup with Andrew Potts, as always. Throughout the show, we want to hear what you're thinking on the topics that we're discussing. Do you agree with us? Do you disagree? Or are you somewhere in between? Make sure you get in touch. Share your thoughts. SMS 0427 Joy 949 Or tweet at Gay Newsweek Joy This is Gay Newsweek on Australia's only GLBTI radio station Joy 94.9 Yes, it's Katie, Jeffrey, and Matt with you this evening And big news for the LGBTI community in South Australia this week with the announcement of the closure of the AIDS Council in that state. Joining us to tell us a bit more about why this has come about and what the reaction has been is the editor of Blaze magazine in Adelaide, Ron Hughes. Ron, thanks for joining us. Uh, Thank you. It's nice to be here. Uh, Now, can you first off give us a little bit of background about how this has actually happened? There's a bit of information about it being financial, but uh, but there's, there's two schools of thought on this. So what's actually going on? Well, um, the plain story is that uh, the AIDS Council last year got into some financial problems. They ran into deficit. Um, There have been claims of uh, mismanagement of funds. Um, So what happened earlier this year, there was an extraordinary general meeting where the previous board was basically overturned and a new board came in and a new interim CEO was appointed. And their job was to get the the AIDS Council back on track and show that they could be financially sustainable. All the evidence shows that they have been able to do that. In the last four months, they actually halved their debt and they were tracking well to be financially stable by the end of the financial year. So, Ron, what, what, what went wrong there? Well, there's um, claims that there was uh, overspending by the um, previous board. Mm-hmm. Um, there's even been suggestions of misappropriation of funds, um, which is currently being uh, investigated. I don't know too much about that. Everybody's keeping their mouths closed, mm-hmm. as you can understand if it's under investigation. 
completely. Um, now, as I understand it, there have been two audits, uh, forensic audits that have gone on inside the organisation. So for those that aren't familiar, they're the sorts of things you do prior to businesses going into insolvency. And they've both recommended that the organisation is stable and ought to be able to continue, but the government's taken a different view. Well, that's correct. Um, there were two independent auditors and they both said you're going to be financially stable by the end of this financial year. The government should have confidence with you. But unfortunately, SA Health were unconvinced. Um, they, I think they just lost confidence in the AIDS Council, basically. Um, they, they didn't think that they could deliver programs. They suggested um, uh, losing some staff. And um, the SA Health have said, well, if they lost their staff, they couldn't deliver the programs to their satisfaction. And they were also concerned that if they got into financial trouble once before, what's to say it wouldn't happen again? That little injection of confidence would have kept the, the AIDS Council going. But unfortunately, SA Health um, dug their heels in and said, no, enough is enough. So uh, is there any way back for the Council from here? And um, if not, or if it's going to be a, a, wait, a lengthy period of time, what happens to delivery of these programs? Well, that's a, that's a good question. There's there's no coming back really for the AIDS Council because they put themselves into voluntary administration. Um, to show that they could actually turn things around and they were doing that but um, they asked for a package which was um, to fund some redundancies Mm -hmm. and also fund the administrators and SA Health refused to fund that and so yesterday the administrators went back to the AIDS Council, called everybody together at four o'clock and gave them their termination notices and the doors are closed. So there is no more AIDS Council. So the government has taken the view that they don't want to throw good money after bad in their opinion, um, but the vital services, what's going on there? Are they continuing or are they stopping as of today? They have promised that they will continue. Um, they're saying that uh, the funding will not change. The money just won't be thrown back into some big pot and applied elsewhere. Money meant for gay men's health will go to gay men's health. Money for the sex industry network will go to the sex industry network. Money for the needle exchange program will go to the needle exchange program. The only question right now is who's going to deliver those services. So they're frantically having meetings for the rest of the week um, to find other providers that will carry them on for the rest of this financial year. All right. Hopefully we'll come back with a update to that to tell you who's going to be running these essential services in South Australia. So Ron Hughes from Blaze Magazine, thank you very much for taking the time to chat with us tonight on Gay News Week. Uh, my pleasure. We'll let you know more when we know more. News, views, interviews and discussion, all from a GLBTI point of view. This is Gay News Week on Joy 94.9. Yes, it's Katie, Jeffrey, and Matt with you this evening. Last Thursday, the South Australian Parliament debated a bill which would have seen same-sex couples marrying in the state. The bill was defeated on voices and subsequently went down in the lower house. Host of Joy's nationally networked GLBTI News and Current Affairs Bulletin QNN and Gay News Week contributor Jacob Holman spoke to the South Australian Labor MP Susan Close, who presented the bill to the House. He started by asking if she was surprised that the bill didn't pass. Joy. 
Uh, well, at the time I wasn't surprised because it had become clear that the Liberal Party had uh, determined that it would not allow a conscience vote. And given that there are differing views across uh, both parties and also we have some independents, I knew that I needed everyone to be exercising their conscience uh, in order to get enough votes to get it through. And it is possible it wouldn't have succeeded in any case, um, but it simply couldn't succeed without the opposition, the Liberal Party, giving a conscience vote. Many of the arguments raised by the Liberal members of the Parliament were that the bill would not pass constitutional muster, that it would actually go up for a High Court challenge, and they didn't seem to be, in principle, opposing same-sex marriage, but they just argued that it wouldn't pass constitutional muster. What do you make of that argument? Well, that is the reason that they've given for not allowing a conscience vote. So there are people in the Liberal Party who are in favour of same-sex marriage and people who are against, and we heard from both sides yesterday. The uh, argument that they've used for not allowing a conscience vote is that uh, they are not convinced that it's something that the state can do. Uh, And you would have heard a lot of people who are in favour of same-sex marriage making that case as a reason for not being able to vote in favour of the bill. Um, uh, The advice that I've received, and we also held a seminar for MPs uh, a couple of weeks ago in between when I first introduced the bill and when I asked for the vote, Uh, The the best advice that constitutional experts can give is that it is absolutely constitutional for a state to legislate on marriage. There are things in the Constitution that are wholly the business of the Commonwealth and there are things that are wholly the business of states and then there are what's called concurrent areas of, of interest. So marriage is very clearly something that states have legislated on. Uh, in South Australia, we had a Marriage Act up until 1961, and um, just a few years before that, we amended it, so well after federation. So it is something that the state is able to have legislation on. Um, so there's no question in that sense of its constitutionality. However, it is absolutely also true, and we all have to be honest about this, that it uh, will in all likelihood be the subject of a High Court challenge and it could lose. And the reason it could lose is that uh, the High Court could determine that the legislation is inconsistent with the Commonwealth legislation. And there are respectable arguments on both sides. There are arguments that the Commonwealth, in defining marriage as simply being between a man and a woman, have only defined what a Commonwealth marriage is and that therefore there's room for states to say, well, we have something different, which is called same-sex marriage in South Australia. And uh, there are people who think that we would succeed at the High Court on that, and there are people who think that we wouldn't. Uh, The real challenge is that if no state does it, we will never know. And uh, it seemed to me that it was appropriate to give uh, South Australia the opportunity of being that first state that tested that legislation, uh, sorry, tested that constitutionality. Now, unfortunately, the Liberal Party decided to prejudge that to say, well, we're not on the High Court, but we're going to make the decision anyway that we don't think it's constitutional and therefore we won't support it. And I think that's a real pity. I suspect another state will do it. Mm -hmm. I think it will happen. The opposition leader said, he had an interesting statement, he said that it would be cruel to gay couples if a bill was passed by the South Australian Parliament and then was ultimately overturned by the High Court. Do you agree with that? (laughs) Uh, No, I don't, and there's there's two reasons I don't. Uh, The the most simple reason is uh, that I believe I know of people who would be happy to get married under those circumstances and allow themselves to be tested. 
But his larger point that, look, we shouldn't really let people get into a situation and then have the threat of a, a challenge hanging over them, is not unreasonable. And therefore, the second reason I disagree with him is that it would, uh, I, I had opened the op uh, up a discussion with the opposition to say we could stagger the implementation of this bill so that we bring in some clauses prior to bringing in the full uh, marriage celebration, which would mean that the High Court challenge could occur without anyone being married. So I had already uh, raised that as an option in order to avoid that very circumstance. But that said, as I say, I, I reckon there are a number of couples who wouldn't mind going through that as part of their um, symbolic, uh, the, the, the steps towards progress, that they would feel that that was something that they wanted to do. But, but we could do it without that occurring. Was that included in the bill, that, that clause that would uh, stagger the introduction of same-sex marriage, or, or was it not? No, no, it, it wasn't, um, and you wouldn't necessarily have to do it in the bill. You could do it as the, um, the way in which the government chooses to then gazette it. But I had floated that I would be prepared to look at amendment along those lines. Um, but it became apparent that the there was it was not likely to get into that second reading stage where into the committee stage, sorry, where you where you do do those amendments. Um, that there was a, a view that had been formed within the Liberal Party that they did they did not regard it as constitutional. Okay, this this issue was quite interesting because it sort of united uh, the Liberal opposition with uh, a lot of gay activists. Deputy Opposition Leader uh, Vicky Chapman suggested that uh, introducing the bill on Thursday was a tactic of the government to present the bill in the full knowledge that it would fail. Uh, Rodney Croom from Australian Marriage Equality also called on South Australian Labor to work across the aisle. Do you think that the bill was given enough chance of success? Um, the specific issue that Rodney was raising, and I have a lot of respect for AME, um, and you know it's legitimate for them to engage in this debate. The specific issue that he was raising, that he was concerned about, is that New South Wales, in their parliament, is about to come out with a report in the next few days on um, an investigation into the constitutionality of this kind of legislation. And what I was hearing, although no one formally approached me and said, please defer it because we may change our minds, but what I was hearing was, look, if you wait until after that happens, then it's possible that the Liberal Party will not enforce a conscience vote. But countervailing that uh, was a couple of things. First of all, we're about to uh, go, so yesterday was our last day of sitting for six weeks. We then only have six more weeks of sitting in Parliament. I have seen delaying tactics occur, particularly on conscience issues, where a bill is introduced and then there's, oh, we just need to think this through and we need a bit of time on that, and then the year's gone. And what I didn't want was for this piece of legislation to simply sit on the notice paper and fall off. We've got an election early next year, so it would be Parliament's prorogue, which means all the legislation's gone. And I didn't want that to happen to this. I thought it was historically significant that we were actually introducing this and debating it, and I wanted a vote on it. I also don't buy, and it's a matter of judgment, but I don't buy that an interstate report ought to or will, in fact, make a difference to the Liberal Party position. Do you now, think they were being dishonest about wrong, that? Uh, 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 no, because no one's come and asked me. So I think uh, it's a question of judgment. So the Liberal Party didn't say that they would change their mind to me. They, okay. they never made that claim. However, I think that there was a general view that that might be possible, and that's why there was the request to delay. But here's the interesting thing. We've gone through, we've voted on it, people have made the decisions that they've made. The bill um, is identical to one that had been previously introduced by the Greens in the upper house and amended significantly by one of our ministers, one of the Labor ministers. That bill remains in the upper house. 
So should it be that, in fact, this uh, report from New South Wales offers an alternative view that is convincing to the Liberal Party, then they will have the opportunity to remove the conscience vote for that bill. So all is not lost. What I was concerned about is this just wait, just wait, put it off, let other things happen first, and then we don't do anything about it. And I must say, the discussions that I heard, the speeches yesterday from the Liberal Party that related to the Constitution seemed to me to set an impossible bar for that New South Wales report. I can't conceive that that report could rule out a High Court challenge or could say that in the event of a High Court challenge it would uh, unambiguously be um, unsuccessful. Mm -hmm. It seemed to me that that was the tenor of what they were saying in Parliament that it would need to do for them to reconsider. Yeah. Well, in fact, the New South Wales Parliamentary Inquiry was released probably in the last uh, hour or so from the time we're recording this uh, and they did in fact concede that a state-based same-sex marriage bill would be subject to a High Court challenge but they said that uh, a law passed by a state parliament would be uh, constitutional. Do you think that strengthens... That's exactly the advice that I've had, that I gave in the second reading speech that was given in the seminar. That's the only position they could come up with because it's the truth. It is constitutional to have a piece of legislation relating to marriage. It is unclear whether the High Court would regard it as inconsistent. Um, And, you know, we will see if the State Liberal Party, having heard it from the mouths of New South Wales, people rather than from South Australian people reconsider, then good on them. But Mm. um, we'll see. On a personal level, why is it so important uh, and what motivated you to pursue reform to marriage in in South Australia? Well, there's a couple of arguments. So I'm I'm a Labor Member of Parliament and part of why I'm Labor is because I believe in people having rights. I'm against discrimination and I'm in favour of pushing power down to uh, everybody. I believe in democracy, I believe in people being equal before the law. These are really fundamental values for me and they're Labor values and so I'm proud of that. Uh, There is also a personal side, so I believe I would feel that that way regardless. But in addition to that, my young brother, 10 years younger than I am, uh, is a gay man. Uh, I watched him come out in year 11, which is a very courageous thing to do. He's now 35, so that was a while ago. And uh, and so on that personal front, it makes it very simple for me. Um, I, I have the right to marry, he doesn't. So that that takes away any of the um, lack of having a personal sense of why this is an important issue. Um, It it becomes very clear to me uh, that my brother and I are very similar in personality um, and we each have partners. I'm allowed to get married, he doesn't seem right. Dr Susan Close, uh, Labor member for Port Adelaide in the South Australian Parliament, thank you very much for joining us on Joy 94.9. You're welcome. That's Jacob Holman from QNN with that interview with Susan Close. Now, I think that was an interesting interview, and I want to know whether the uh, lack of conscience vote for the Liberals in South Australia was something uh, they decided to do themselves or whether it was uh, any level of federal influence. Uh, Uh, Tony Abbott not wanting this on the federal election agenda coming up. I think that would put an enormous amount of pressure on Tony Tony Abbott if the South Australian Liberals did allow a conscience vote. I I would imagine that would be almost certainly pressure from above or am I just really cynical? I am. I I think you're cynical and I think it's probably true. So (laughs) I think think that's generally the best way to be in politics, isn't it? (laughs) I think so. I think my other question out of that is why was there no division or vote called in the House? Because it doesn't take much when you're doing these sort of things to actually push it to a vote so that individual members of the House get their names written down as being for or against something. Whereas when they do it on the voices, 
it, there is no one's uh, name actually being oh, documented. Okay. So it's... It's a bit of a weasel way out. It's interesting that um, a couple of issues I, th- I thought came out of that was particularly around if there's state um, same-sex marriage, then how does that affect the couples if they the decision is then overturned by the High Court so that you have the opportunity to get married and then all of a sudden you're not married anymore, which we saw a lot of that happening in California. Um, so I think that I, I think that that's one of those things that it was suggested that potentially it was cruel. I don't think it's cruel because I think you know how is it any worse than not being allowed to get married at all? Number one, and uh, number two, I think as long as people go into it understanding that this isn't part of political play. And being part of a political play means that you go into being one of the first couples getting married, knowing that your case may well be the one that makes it to the High Court and that you're going to have to stand there and have people discuss your marriage and your stuff. That's right. Mm. It's it's interesting, um, you know, obviously we've got New South Wales talking about um, doing their, their own bill and also the ACT as well. What actually happens in terms of if all of a sudden we've got different states trying to get same-sex marriage? Yeah, but I think that's actually the point, though, is that we have... Um, that you were talking about how South Australia, um, Tony Abbott probably doesn't want South Australia, that he doesn't want that on his desk. He's already got that going on in New South Wales. Barry O'Farrell saying he's re- he's ready to go it alone and, and, and have New South Wales mm. be the only state that legislated. So really, I, I, I don't think that would be one issue that why it should, it should be declined like that. Um, mind you, yeah. Who knows? I mean, it's interesting. I think it could get a bit messy if all of a sudden the states have got different ideas around what same-sex marriage is. For example, the mm-hmm. New South Wales bill excludes transgender and intersex couples. Um, uh, so, Which is a discussion we were actually having this afternoon, mm. and, and I didn't actually quite understand it. Jacob Holman was actually in the studios with us this evening, and he actually helped explain a few things where basically, so if they legalise same-sex marriage in one state, say, say New South Wales, and then there was a transgendered couple that's with, so with opposite sex an opposite sex couple, they would be excluded from that same sex legislation at a state level. And it's, yeah, I think this is the difficulty with having um, states trying to get bills passed and make them, making them as tight as possible to get them through as mm. opposed to a full equality marriage bill through the federal government. And the other side of that is should we take what we can get when we can get it and Completely. be very pragmatic about well, it? And that's, that's a way forward is maybe we have to do it messily. If this was going to be can we take what we can get when we get it, we should have done civil unions five years ago. Do you know what I mean? This has always been about getting full equality, no shortcuts, no exclusions. And that strategy hasn't worked yet. Well, it hasn't worked, but it's come a long way. And do you just, I mean, we've seen in New Zealand and the UK and with the civil unions, they then push for full equality. I mean, maybe it's take one step forward in a different way. I don't know. Our social media editor, Shannon, has asked on Twitter at Gay Newsweek, Joy, does one state need to legalise marriage equality before the rest will? Daniel has sent us a tweet and he says a resounding yes, basically. So that's what Daniel's saying. He says we need to go one state at a time um, until basically the whole country comes on board. Agree, disagree? I think it's a way forward. I think it's messy, but it's better than what we've not got already. It's one strategy, but I'm not big on it if we start excluding people just to get something through. That seems like just the same old problem, playing mm. out again. Very interesting. On the feedback as well, 0427JOY949, Tony has sent us a message saying, classic Labor governments showing complete disrespect for the GLBTI community, obviously talking about the South Australian AIDS Council shutting down at the very start of the show. News, views, interviews and discussion, all from a GLBTI point of view. Gay Newsweek on Joy 94.9. What exists in every corner of the world? Embraced and celebrated in some countries. But is illegal in 76. What is hidden for fear of public shame, imprisonment, torture, or in seven countries even? Even the death penalty. 
Well, tears, families apart. What makes people confront brutal violence on a daily basis? What simple trait gets people treated as second-class citizens everywhere they go? What gets children kicked out of homes, students bullied and expelled from schools, and workers fired from jobs without warning? What has existed in every country throughout history that some people still consider abnormal? Being gay. Being lesbian. Bisexual. Transgender. All over the world, millions of people face violence and discrimination just for being who they are. Every nation is obligated by international human rights law to protect all lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender people from torture, discrimination and violence. The United Nations has one simple message to the millions of LGBT people around the world. You are not alone. You are not alone. LGBT rights are human rights. LGBT rights are human rights. Together, we will build a world. We will build a world that is free and equal. And that was the online video clip from the Born Free and Equal campaign, which is an initiative of the United Nations Human Rights Office. So to discuss this particular new campaign, we have on the line Cecile Pooley. I hope I've pronounced that right. Are you there, Cecile? Hi, I'm fine. How are you doing? Good. And Cecile is uh, from the media office at the United Nations in Geneva. First off, um, where did the inspiration for this campaign come from? What was actually driving the announcement of this last week? Well, first we issued a report in December 2011, which was the first ever official UN report on violence and discrimination against LGBT uh, people. And we thought the next step is really to raise more awareness um, regarding all the discrimination and the violence uh, that LGBT people face throughout the, uh, the world. And so that's why we decided to, visit, to, to launch this unprecedented uh, global campaign. It's an amazing uh, an amazing announcement and an important step in taking a global focus on GLBTI uh, rights. But how do you go about influencing the countries where LGBTI people are the most oppressed? E.g. some of the scenes we're seeing out of Russia at the moment, some of the stories we hear out of some of the African nations. How do you go about getting that message through there? Well, of course, there's a lot to be done. Um, there is, of, of course, a need to engage into a conversation to change people's minds, people's hearts, obviously, so they get to understand better the lives LGBT people live through the eyes of LGBT people, so they have a better understanding of what they, uh, what they face. And, of course, there is also a, a need for legal reforms in over 76 countries um, in the world, um, consensual same-sex relationship are still being criminalised. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done. We here on Gay Newsweek, as a gay and lesbian broadcaster, cover a lot of the very bad stories that occur around the world in the GLBTI international community on a regular basis. How much do you think a campaign like this will influence those countries that are so far behind the rest of the world to catch up? 
Well, we really do uh, hope that they will start engaging people, I mean, everyday people, into a conversation. So they start to understand um, the, the need for more equality for LGBT people. After all, uh, LGBT people are just people. They have basic rights, and these human rights really are universal. Everyone, whoever they are, wherever they live, are entitled to those same rights. And that includes lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and intersex people. No one should be attacked and discriminated against just because of their sexual orientation or gender identity. So we're hoping, we know this conversation um, is not necessarily easy in some parts of the world and changing attitudes is never easy. That takes time, but we really need to engage this conversation. And certainly it appears that a number of the countries... uh are not complying with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and a number of other instruments that have been put out and signed off on in the United Nations. And so that level of international pressure must uh, at least start an impetus for change in some of these places. Uh, absolutely. We've been extremely vocal on this issue. Um, and um, as I mentioned, not only um, same-sex relationships are being criminalized in 76 countries in the world, but at least in at least five countries, um, same-sex relationships are punishable by death. So there is really quick action that is needed and more lobbying. But I think it's also happened not only at the diplomatic level, but at, uh, as well uh, um, at the level of the public at large. So that's why we need really um, this campaign to engage um, a maximum of people. And we really hope our um, initiative as well uh, online uh, will have um, echo and will have a lot of impact. So Cecile, what, how will you go about um, having that impact, both at a legal uh, level um, internationally, but also in terms of public education? Yeah, absolutely. What we're trying to do is uh, prepare an, an online campaign on social media and engage people at the national level to engage themselves into um, their own dynamic and their own conversation. Uh, we will be uh, promoting, we have a, a video that has already been released, which is called The Riddle, um, but there are also a number of series of films interviewing family members of LGBT people around the world so they can tell their story with their own words and explain what their situation is like and and so we can understand their life but as well um, through through their own wording but as well through the eyes of their mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, um, you know, their families who are as well impacted by the discrimination that is faced by LGBT people. And certainly in terms of campaigning we know here that using our straight allies as a force for change is a really important way forward. Now the riddle is the audio piece that we played for you at the beginning of this segment, uh, which is the audio piece I referred to. And I actually noticed at least one of the other pieces that are up online. So we're going to put that up on um, our feed and uh, circulate that through the Joy Networks um, here in the station. So what can our people that are listening to this, either on the broadcast web stream or podcast, do to interact with this initiative? Well, I think they can help um, the video being seen by as many people as possible and as well try to discuss um, around them with people they know and engage into that very important conversation. Why do LGBT people deserve equality and what can they do at their own level to change um, preconception, misconceptions about LGBT people worldwide, but as well at a very national and local level? 
All right. Thank you very much for taking the time, Cecile Pooley, from the Human Rights Office of the United Nations in Geneva for chatting with us about this fantastic initiative that certainly we here at Gay News Week support. News, views, interviews and discussion, all from a GLBTI point of view. This is Gay News Week on Joy 94.9. Yes, it's Katie, Jeffrey, and Matt this evening. Time to take a look at some of the stories making news around the country in the National Affairs Roundup. And the first one we're going to go with is gender discrimination to be removed from Medicare. Um, health Minister Tanya Plibersek, who is a friend of this program, has announced gender discrimination will be removed from Medicare forms and the likes. And so people will not have to declare their sex or gender necessarily uh, to Medicare and to access health services uh, in that are funded by Medicare. So this is a great step in a good direction Mm -hmm. uh, for our people in the trans and intersex communities, our brothers and sisters there. Yeah, certainly. And of course, um, this story was covered on On The Line last Thursday with Dean Beck. He actually spoke to Tanya Plibersek in the studio. And it covers about 6,000 services and 43 of them will need to be changed uh, to cover this. So this is a really good step. That is really dramatic indeed. Um, Of course, uh, it wouldn't be Gay News Week if we didn't have a rainbow story. I know, and we've been a bit short on rainbow stories recently. So what a relief. If it's back, and uh, the Lord Mayor of Sydney, Clover Moore, has um, is basically talking about she wants to get a permanent symbol at Taylor Square. Now I'm not sure if it's a permanent rainbow though yeah. on the street. We're still not talking about a rainbow crossing. They're just trying to. Do, they've got a couple of ideas of bandied about a rainbow fountain that released bubbles on the hour. <gasps> I like that one. Could we do rainbow bubbles? Uh, I, I think there would have to be rainbow bubbles be or a giant flag in Taylor Square that lit up at night to provide a spot for taking photos. I like the bubbles better. And yeah, or a multicolour voltaic floor that creates a rainbow as you walk across it. I'm Ooh, down with that idea. That's a good one too. So we, we should have rainbow bubbles and the rainbow floor. I think just create rainbow central. I'm getting the idea of Saturday Night Fever a little bit. Anyone else? Anyone else? The rainbow floor thing? No. You know, the dancing thing. It's interesting that you would give that reference. Shut up. like 20 years before you were born or something. (laughs) Anyway, mind you, staying (laughs) with rainbows, Vancouver. I know it's not a national story, but I found this one. Vancouver, they've got a rainbow crossing unveiled. It's it's amazing. There's three rainbows going across the street. I don't know why. We're still doing a rainbow bubble system we're talking about here. It's a rainbow bubble under street uh, (laughs) arrangement. Where do these discussions come from? And then lastly, in the National Affairs Roundup, the Australian Bureau of Statistics has found that same-sex couples have more money, more qualifications, and more children. And that we're apparently happier. Did I read somewhere that we're yeah, happier as a result? And more equal as well in I think terms we're of distribution well. of household chores. I think chores. that's probably true. <laughs> um, we distribute them. Uh, so I think what this tells Less us religious. is that once you get a little bit on in years and you're actually living as a stable couple in a relationship, you're actually happier than um, our heterosexual counterparts. Mm. Assuming that, of course, that you're happier because and in a relationship you might be single and happy. Um, and it also <laughs> just saying. And given that a quarter of the respondents <laughs> to this study actually lived within uh, the confines of Sydney, I think the story might be different because I don't know who yeah, would. I, know. I think once you get out of the big cities, I don't know how you're going to respond to the survey a, techniques or course, the census. And yeah, that's right. People who are willing to uh, mm, come out to declare. Sex. And just lastly on that story, some of the stats: twenty-seven of the nation's same-sex couples are living in the electorate of Sydney. Twenty-seven percent, probably, that's rather right. than twenty-seven. Did I say twenty-seven percent? <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. Then Melbourne, and then interesting. Thirdly, Wentworth in New South Wales. That is the electorate that Malcolm Turnbull controls. Just so you know, there you go. That's and 
that featured heavily in Prisoner, I think. Oh, and, well. and and now is the new show on Foxtel. <laughs> All right, moving on. Okay, that's the National Affairs Roundup. Time to take, it some, take a look at some of the stories making news around the globe. We're joined, as always, by Andrew Potts from Gay Star News. Good evening, Andrew. Hey, guys. Andrew, first off tonight, good news from the Pope, which we've been waiting a long time to say. But um, at World Youth Day in Brazil, he said he could not judge people for their sexual orientation. And um, it's had a particularly strong response from LGBT. LGBT people in the Philippines. That's right. So following uh, Pope Francis's trip to Brazil for World Youth Day, he, uh, he did an interview in Rome where he uh, was asked a number of questions about uh, the issue of uh, homosexuality and also gay clergy. And what he said was that if someone is gay and he searches for the Lord and has goodwill, who am I to judge? Um, so that's a very different sort of statement than what we've heard from the last two popes. Mm. Um, and the uh, progressive organisation of, gay, of gays in the Philippines, uh, it, they've praised what they call a somewhat positive... Um, words by the Pope. Uh, what, what they've said is the Pope's declaration is a non-judgmental position about integrating gays into society and is a marked improvement over his predecessor's harsh and bitchy remarks. <laughs> uh, each time the media interviewed the ex-Pope about homosexuality, that was uh, Clyde Pumahik of the, uh, the uh, that association spokesman. It's a great small first step in a good direction, and I think that's about as positive as I can be about it. Yeah. Um, tell us what's going on in Vietnam. <laughs> Okay, so we've now seen a second Vietnamese government ministry uh, backing uh, same-sex marriage in the Southeast Asian nation. Wow. Um, so the first uh, ministry to do that was the, the health ministry, and they were quite emphatic that the government should get on and pass it quickly. Uh, this time it's the justice ministry. Uh, that's important because it's the justice ministry that's actually running the uh, the government inquiry into same-sex marriage there. Now, um, what they're suggesting is that they won't go straight ahead with same-sex marriage. They're going to try and sort of pre- pre- prepare the, the country for the change. Um, so what they're planning to do is first to amend the country's uh, law on uh, family and marriage. Uh, currently, uh, men are allowed to marry if they're over 20 and women are allowed to marry if they're over 18. They're going to make that equal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what they're also, go- also going to do is start formally recognising uh, same-sex couples' uh, property rights uh, as a way of nudging society forward to, a- to eventually, hopefully in the next few years, legalising same-sex marriage. Mm, right. Fairly positive stories yeah, coming. Yeah, very positive. Uh, and uh, across across the Tasman, uh, not such positive news. An, anti- an anti-gay speech, well, it's kind of positive, from, has prompted a mass walkout in New Zealand Youth Parliament. Tell us a bit more about this one, Andrew. That's right. So uh, each in each term of parliament, in New Zealand, there's a legally uh, mandated youth parliament is held where uh, a child is between the age of 18, 18 and 16 uh, is chosen to represent every uh, electorate in New Zealand. Mm. Uh, so during this time, uh, uh, Kura Waller, she was the uh, youth MP, uh, one of the youth MPs for the, the New Zealand Maori Party, and she chose the three-month anniversary of New Zealand voting to approve same-sex marriage to rail across against what she called madness, saying that gay people were outside the circle of life in reference oh. to the Lion King. Um, now, uh, that... that prompted uh, a large walkout of MPs, about one-third of the, the, the youth MPs in the, in the House of Representatives walking out, and they were led by uh, the youth MPs from the Labor, Green and National Party. So that was a fairly uh, strong statement there from all of the, the major parties in New Zealand about those sorts of uh, 
those sentiments. Mm. Uh, now, UFC fighting isn't one of my strong points. Katie, is it yours? <laughs> um, no. But you like this story. Well, I think I think this story is a little bit entertaining. Sure. So this is um, there's Kamush as someone who has won the first <laughs> Ultimate Fighting Championship bout between two same-sex attracted women. Oh. I think the most interesting thing about this is this is only the first bout between two same-sex attracted women yeah. in Ultimate Fighting. World first. Wow. Mm. Andrew, can you tell us a little more about this one? Yeah, yeah, sure. I, I, I do watch the Ultimate Fighting, so <laughs> do I, you? I can give you a bit of background. Uh, so Liz Kamush, uh, she's the first uh, openly gay UFC fighter. Um, she's uh, won quite a few matches, but this is the first time in the UFC that, that two same-sex attracted players, uh, openly gay players, have uh, fought against each other, and Kamush has come out on top. Um, she knocked out her... Uh, Brazilian opponent Jessica Andrade with a second round knockout. Oh, uh, wow, feisty! It sounds it sounds like a pretty um, intense sport here, Andrew. I just want to <laughs> just read out a little bit of the um, the information about the the game, mm. the round, the fight, the bout, whatever you call it. Sure, um, okay, so, so uh, things didn't look that good for Kamush in round one, and she spent <laughs> most of it trying to break out of guillotine chokehold. Um, a guillotine chokehold. Um, but unfortunately, Andrade <laughs> was unable to choke Ch- Kamush out. So mm. the next round, they uh, got back up to their their feet. And uh, Kamush pummeled Andrade before attempting two submissions and then locking in a knockout blow from a mounted position. The match was scored 9 3. Well, that's excellent. On, on a slightly more, st- I don't know if it's a more serious note, but is this is ultimate fighting a particularly uh, homophobic environment, or why is this particularly? Um, well, ac- actually, the USC president Dana White, um, he's said that he'd love to see uh, greater LGBT participation in the sport, um, and uh, the sport uh, actually fined a lightweight fighter twenty grand ah, and suspended right. him for ninety days last year. That's right. We did talk about that. Big tweet. Yeah. Mm. So I reckon that's that's a really interesting one. Um, but let's let's and we're going to do the next bit without Matty because he's yeah. on the floor with uh, tears rolling down his face on that. Um, talk to us about Gay Mario Brothers, which is a game from way back. Um, Another hard hitting story that, that uh, we'd covering. like to cover. Go. Okay, so what's happened is a. a story in the Spanish language equivalent of the onion uh, claiming that the Super Mario brothers are actually a gay couple has spread virally online with Spanish language media across South America reporting it as a serious news story. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) Um, So what they said was um, they had a July 16 report where they said that an investigation had found that children under 10 were just assuming that the Luigi and Mario were a gay couple. Mm, like then, Ernie and Bert. And then on July uh, 19, they followed up uh, with, with a, a false story with uh, the, the, uh, an interview with the supposed uh, inventor of the Super Mario Brothers. And what he he, he told, uh, or he was quoted as saying in CNCL Seminal, that was the website, uh, he was quoted as saying, that was the original intention of the game. Uh, it was a game charged with the signs of gay culture and Luigi and Mario were a gay couple trying to brave a society that were Andrew, is there any word on whether the princess is a lesbian? I don't know, but according to the the article, the uh, flagpoles at the end of each level of Super Mario Brothers are actually phallic symbols. (laughs) (laughs) And and the Goomba enemies in the game were supposed to represent testicles. And the turtles? Do we know anything about the turtles? Uh, I don't know anything on the status of the turtles. But Just <laughs> confirming, no response on turtles. The, the no story response. was picked up from a far afield of Mexico to Argentina. <laughs> so I think that says something about the, the standards of uh, 
maybe Spanish language tabloid fact st- checking. Well, that's and it, and the story that these are the stories that must be told. <laughs> <laughs> it's always the hard hitting stories that we take away from the International Affairs Roundup with you, Andrew Potts. Thank you so much for bringing us all the latest from Gay Star News. Anytime. News, views, interviews, and discussion, all from a GLBTI point of view. This is Gay News Week on Joy 94.9. Yes, it's been Katie, Jeffrey, and Matt with you this evening. Before we get out of here, just a few more messages coming through on 0427 oh, yes. Joy 9491 says, Don't settle for less and don't compromise. Your life and identity is worth much more. Obviously, talking about full marriage, equality. full equality, and all of that stuff. Might have been Mario Brothers. <laughs> Might have been. Might have been. Um, and another person about our lovely. Uh, Perhaps Bubble fountain. Bubble fountain in uh, Taylor Square. Um, oh, I'd love a fountain with lights. It'd be so pretty in kids' photos. Let it be. I'm thinking something with marble and Greek. Oh, I like that. I like the sound it's of elaborate. that. It's elaborate. I think put it forward. Put and it forward we could to the do the, um, the, the women's fighting on top of the thing <laughs> underneath the bubbles. <laughs> Look, it's a Labor government. They're big with spending. Anyway, uh, that's all for Gay News Week tonight. Before we get out of here, we need to say a big thank you to everyone who joined in the conversation this evening. We thank you so much for your input. And, of course, our technical producer Matt Nock for pushing the buttons and then also we'd like to thank Eric for taking calls on the front desk of course Shannon Gillies for all the social media activity that you will see today and through the week Uh, throughout the week follow us on Twitter at Gay News Week Joy and of course on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Gay News Week Joy 949 and of course we need to say actually thank you to Gordon who's on the front desk not Eric he was on before oh Nice, yeah, nice try. Didn't see the changeover. You didn't. No. Sorry, didn't. sorry about that, Gordon. And we're available <laughs> all across the networks and networks and social medias and stuff, including a podcast. And yeah. we have an encore presentation Monday nights at midnight. For more but information, you can go to joy.org.au forward slash Gay News Week. Until next week, we are Katie Larson, Jeffrey Devine. <laughs> My name is Matt Thompson. This has been the shambles that is always Gay News Week on the gayest station in the nation. From Australia's biggest GLBTI broadcast media organisation. Gay News Week on Joy 94.9. Joy 94.9. To find out more about Joy 94.9, check out joy.org.au. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA community media organisation, Joy. Help us keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.